Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. Tonight in the Psalms, I'm reading chapter 76 and 77 because these are both pretty short. Chapter 76 theme says, A call for God to punish evildoers, even people's angry revolts, will be used by God to bring glory to himself. The author is Asaph. For the choir director, a psalm of Asaph, a song to be accompanied by stringed instruments. Verse 1. God is honored in Judah. His name is great in Israel. Jerusalem is where he lives. Mount Zion is his home. There he has broken the fiery arrows of the enemy, the shields and swords and weapons of war. You are glorious and more majestic than the everlasting mountains. Your boldest enemies have been plundered. They lie before us in the sleep of death. No warrior could lift a hand against us. At the blast of your breath, O God of Jacob, their horses and chariots lay still. No wonder you are greatly feared. Who can stand before you when your anger explodes? From heaven you sentenced your enemies. The earth trembled and stood silent before you. You stand up to judge those who do evil, O God, and to rescue the, the oppressed of the earth. Human defiance only enhances your glory, for you use it as a weapon. Make vows to the Lord your God and keep them. Let everyone bring tribute to the awesome one, for he breaks the pride of the princes and the kings of the earth fear him. There's one verse I want to read a comment on, which is verse 10. Human defiance only enhances your glory, for you use it as a weapon. The footnote says the meaning of the Hebrew here is uncertain. The commentator says, how can defiance bring glory to God? Hostility to God and his people gives God the opportunity to do great deeds. For example, the Pharaoh of Egypt refused to free the Hebrew slaves, Exodus 5, 1 through 2, and thus allowed God to work mighty miracles for his people, Exodus 11.9. God turns the tables on evildoers and brings glory to himself from the foolishness of those who deny him or revolt against him. God's wrath expressed in judgment brings praise from those who have been delivered. Human defiance only enhances your glory, for you use it as a weapon to deliver those who are enslaved or oppressed or beaten down. We see that over and over again in the Bible, and I think we see it throughout our own more recent history as well. Chapter 77. The theme here is we are comforted through the hard times by remembering God's help in the past Recalling God's miracles and previous works can give us courage to continue. Asaph is also the author here for Jedithan, the choir director of Psalm of Asaph. Verse 1. I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God, and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. 
You don't let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? In his unfailing, is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? Man, has he slammed the door on his compassion? What an image. Verse 10, and I said, this is my fate. The most high has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Well, now that is not what you said a minute ago. <laughs> so, gosh, what what an incredibly realistic picture of what we do as humans. One minute, we're in deep depression and it's terrible and we can think of nothing else and our life was better before and then the next minute we remember how blessed we are and then say i remember your wonderful deeds of long ago they are constantly in my thoughts i cannot stop thinking about your mighty works even though five minutes ago it was a different story anyway i love the realism verse 13 oh god your ways are holy is there any god as mighty as you you are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, and a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. And he references the freeing the people from Egypt, which is exactly what the commentators referenced on the previous chapter, chapter 76. So in this chapter, my commenter points out the same thing that jumped out at me is his quick change of attitude in this single Psalm. He says, Asaph cried out to God for courage during a time of deep distress. The source of his distress was his doubt. But Asaph, see verses seven to nine but asaph's perspective changed and in a few moments the eye was gone as asaph expressed his request to god his focus changed from thinking of himself to worshiping god quote you are the god of great wonders only after he put aside his doubts about god's holiness and care for him did he eliminate his distress as we pray to god he shifts our focus from ourselves to him I like that. And as I read this one, I, I think a lot about the many, many people out there, both that I know and that I don't know, who suffer from depression. And I hope that if they can summer, summon 
their energy to pray. Like this author here says, you don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. But then he does. And I hope that if anybody with depression, if they summon the energy to pray, that God will shift their focus to him, what he has done and what he will do for them. That's my prayer. So I am excited to be finishing up another book, The Song of Solomon. There's only three chapters left, and they're not all that long, chapters six, seven, and eight. So in chapter six, Solomon is basically just praising his wife's body, <laughs> his most of that chapter. But one thing that really stands out to me about this, this end of the section is one thing she continually repeats throughout the book is um, encouraging young women to what she says is, is don't awaken love until the time is right. And in chapter eight, she talks about how she kept herself a virgin until marriage. And he, Solomon, a king, falls for this beautiful working class woman. And in chapter six, verse eight, he says, even among 60 queens and 80 concubines, which might have been how many he had at that point, but we know later on he gets even more. Even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose my dove, my perfect one, the favorite of her mother. So he's saying, even though I have all of these other wives and concubines, you are my one. So she is faithful to him and he continues to adore her and sees her as his soulmate, even though she wasn't royalty. One of the comments on this says, Solomon did indeed have many queens, wives, and concubines. Polygamy, though not condoned by God, was common in Old Testament days. Solomon said that his love for this woman had not diminished since their wedding night, even though many other women were available to him. And the last comment I'll read on this book says, The love between Solomon and his bride did not diminish in intensity after their wedding night. The lovers relied on each other and kept no secrets from each other. Devotion and commitment were the keys to their relationship, just as they are in our relationships to our spouses and to God. The faithfulness of our marital love should reflect God's perfect faithfulness to us. Paul shows how marriage represents Christ's relationship to his church, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And John pictures the second coming as a great marriage feast for Christ and his bride, his faithful followers, Revelation 19, 7 to 8 and 21 want to do. Many people have thought that Song of Songs is an allegory showing Christ's love for his church. It might be even better to say that it is a love poem about a real human love relationship and that all loving, committed marriages are reflections of God's love. I like that because I think to try to argue that this book is <laughs> some metaphor for God's love for the church gets real weird real quick. It's very clear to me this is a, a love poem and it's highly sexual. So to try to compare it to God's love for the church is just bizarre to me. And I like how these commentators kind of more graciously than I would are like, mm, 
no, I don't think that's what this is. <laughs> but I love the model um, of this faithful marriage, even in a time where Solomon uh, had a lot of spouses, probably for mainly political reasons. Um, they invested in each other and their relationship. They complimented each other. They praised each other. They talked well about each other to other people. They didn't criticize each other in front of others. They invested in quality time with each other and words of affirmation and physical touch and gifts. So it's just a sweet story. Although I'm going to say I'm glad it's over. I'm getting tired of poetry from Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. I'm ready to dive back into the chronological storyline of King Solomon. In the New Testament, last time I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31, the wisdom of God. And I was thinking about this either later that day or the next day, how this incredibly wise God chose to make the path of salvation very simple. And I was reminded of a little story an old friend where I used to live told me how he and his daughter had a little game. And they'd be out walking and he'd point at something, like a somebody's dog. And he'd say, hey, what is that dog doing? And her response in this game would be, the dog is glorifying God. Yeah, why is the dog glorifying God? Because it's being a dog. Because God made the dog to be a dog and it's just walking around, sniffing, having a great time, doing exactly what God made dogs to do. And that brings him glory. And he might point to a piece of grass. Hey, what's that grass doing? It's glorifying God. Why? Because it's being grass. <laughs> it's being what God made it to be. And I started thinking about humanity and how we do that too. When we are being who God meant us to be, it is bringing him glory, being our authentic selves. But with humans, it gets complicated because we have the power of choice and we can choose to not be the best version of ourselves, right? We may make choices based out of selfishness or vindictiveness or etc. in which case we're not glorifying God because we're not only failing to be our true authentic self, but we're not choosing to be the best version of ourselves that he designed us to be. So I started thinking about this power of choice. And then I had this impression from God, which I'll try to summarize, which basically was this, that he... He gave us the power of choice on purpose. And he said something like, when a person chooses negative, when they make a negative choice, a harmful choice, it's very, very powerful, right? A person's evil choice can have a, a, a ripple effect that hurts a lot of people, right? 
He said, but when they make a positive choice, that is even more powerful than the negative one. And if a blade of grass can glorify God just by being grass, and it does not have the power of choice, how much greater is the glory to God when a human uses their power of choice to choose the positive that has a greater impact in the world than had they made a negative choice and glorifies God all the more. And it's like he said, that's why I gave humans choice because they have more power with their good decisions than any person choosing evil does. And when you think about that and you think about great evils of, of humanity and society, which plenty can come to mind very quickly. And then you think about if that, if those evil choices by those people cause such damage and harm that lasted generations and yet positive choices from humans are even more powerful than that. And I think the hard part is we don't often see that, right? The news doesn't report on the positive effects of generations. However, sometimes you do see it. I like to watch documentaries. And that's often where I see it, is in a documentary where you see a person's life devoted to a cause and doing good uh, for people or humanity, society in some form, and their ripple effect of positive influence for generations and generations to cause uh, movements for good and saving people and, and some things that are available in our society today we wouldn't have had without them. It makes sense. Anyway, just thought I'd share that bit. We're moving on now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is Paul's message of wisdom. So last time we read him talking about God's wisdom, and then I shared with you a little bit about what God said to me about that. And now we're reading Paul's message of wisdom, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Yet when I am at I am among mature believers. I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious God. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me see what he was quoting there. 
That was a quote from Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit, for his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. Hmm. 4. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? He's quoting Isaiah forty thirteen. there. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So in the last chapter, Paul talked about how God kept the path of salvation simple. And in this chapter, he talks about how he kept his message simple. Paul did on purpose. In verses 1 through 5, he talks about that and says, And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. His comment on here uh, on this uh, section says a brilliant scholar Paul could have overwhelmed his listeners with intellectual arguments instead he shared this simple message of Jesus Christ by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide his words and sharing the good news with others we should follow Paul's example and keep our message simple and basic the Holy Spirit will give power to our words and use them to bring glory to Jesus and last comment I'll read here is on verses 14 and 15. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. Non-Christians cannot understand spiritual truths and they cannot grasp the concept that God's spirit lives in believers. Don't expect most people to approve or understand of your decision to follow Christ. It all seems so silly to them. Just as a tone-deaf person cannot appreciate fine music, the person who rejects Christ cannot understand truths from God's Spirit. With the lines of communication broken, they won't be able to hear what God is saying to them. We must not remain silent, however. Using others' difficulty in understanding as an excuse, we are still one of God's communication channels. We must be alert to opportunities. Another person's question may be evidence that God's spirit is drawing them to the point of decision. How would you respond today if someone asked you about your faith? And that's the very reason I started keeping a book of God's acts in my life. Because <laughs> it's, it's easier for me to quote from my own life than it is to quote from the Bible. Uh, particularly without one in front of me. So by keeping a record of God's work in my life, it makes it very easy to say, well, listen, I can't speak to what he's done in other people's lives or yours, but I can tell you what he's done in mine. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
and I've got a whole host of things I can I can draw on, which are really the evidence for for my faith, because when you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there. <laughs>